Well, good evening, One Camp, uh, and uh, it's good to see you guys all here. I'm so thankful. I've been praying for you for months, months. I've been praying for this night for months. We have a lot of ground to cover. We're going to be talking about something the Bible talks about a lot, your heart. Here's our passage. Guard your heart above all else. Above all else. Guard your heart above all else. For it determines the course of your life. Passage is not hard to comprehend. You don't have to have a theological degree to understand what it says and what it means. Guard your heart above all else. For it, your heart, determines the course of your life. When the Bible speaks about your heart in this way, it's not talking about the blood pumping muscle in your chest. Uh, We know that it is just a muscle, nothing more, nothing less. Very important muscle, uh, has chambers, valves, ventricles. We know all of those things about the heart. I tell you what, when your heart starts messing up, (laughs) it gets your attention. Uh, physical heart. We know about that. The Bible does speak of that sometimes, but of the almost 800 times that the Bible speaks of the heart, the overwhelming majority of them are speaking not about this blood pumping muscle, but your spiritual heart, a whole different concept of the heart. We understand this from our common language and our usage of it in everyday language. I love you with all of my heart. You broke my heart. Can I trust you with my heart? Over and over again. Uh, You listen to songs on the radio. You hear it again and again and again. You can be an atheist. And there's a lot of them. And yet even atheists will get on and talk about their heart in a way that is not speaking of that blood-pumping muscle. Somehow, instinctively, they know there's something more. It's probably what Paul was talking about in the book of Romans when he said that the invisible things of God are clearly seen, which is quite a contrast when you think about it. Invisible things of God, clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. You see, we are God's creation. He has made us in His image. And that means we have a spirit, a spiritual side to our being. And that includes our spiritual hearts. The spiritual heart is the place where our desires, our emotions, and our beliefs combine to affect the will that is what we decide to do. You're going to hear that a lot this week. I hope you'll hear it from your small group leaders, your cell group leaders. We're going to mention this a lot. The heart is where your emotions, where your desires and your beliefs all come together to determine what you do. We could say it this way, our desires, that's what we want, what we want. Our emotions, that's how we feel. Our beliefs, then, is what we know to be true, who we believe in, and what, what we understand to be right and wrong, and who gets to tell us our beliefs. Those things together determine what to do. The heart. Guard your heart above all else, for out of it are the issues of life. This is what determines the course of your life. We're going to do a little math tonight. I've got a problem here for you. And I'll tell you ahead of time that this equation is arranged so that the answer to each 
part of the equation becomes the first part of the next equation. You'll see it as we go out. So we're going to start out with the first one. Two plus two equals Y'all can do better than that. I tell you, two plus two equals four. Yeah, y'all got it. Great. All right. Next one. You see it right there. So what is the X? Four plus 16 equals 20. Y'all are smart. Y'all did a lot of good math. Next one, 20 times nine equals 180. Y'all did that right there in your head. That's awesome. Great job. 20 times 9 equals 180. 180 then plus 67 equals? 247. Let's say it this way. 24-7. Say it. 24-7. Guard your heart. 24-7. See, that's our theme for the week. Guard your heart. 24-7. Now, I put this equation together, and uh, obviously with an answer in mind, and I did all that for a reason. You see, the only way you can arrive at the right answer at the end of this problem is to get the first answer right, and then each successive answer right. If you miss any of them along the way, then the whole problem is wrong. You can't get to that right answer 24-7 unless you get them all right. Suppose you miss the third one. Then you're, you're still half right. If you miss the fourth one, then you're three quarters of the way right. But if you miss the first one, you miss it all. See, that's the way life is, and that's the way guarding your heart is. You see, the enemy, the world, and everything that is conspiring against us as a people of God is out to get in your heart as a young person because the enemy knows if he can get you wrong at your age, he can mess up everything that comes afterwards. That's not to say that it's not bad for somebody my age to mess up, but if I mess up as old as I am, hey, I've still got a lot of life behind me that doesn't change. You know, I was still saved when I was saved. I surrendered to preach when I surrendered to preach. I've still pastored churches. I I had five kids married. My high school sweetheart, we're still married. I mean, all of those things are still there, and that doesn't change. If I mess up, God forbid, if I mess up today, I've still got a lot of life behind me that's fine. But you... If you get on the wrong course now, then you've got a whole life that can be messed up. The enemy knows that. We forget, but the enemy knows. That's why you're such a target. That's why there's such a battle being waged right now for your heart, students. You may not realize it. That's exactly what's going on every single day and night of your life. A battle is being waged for your heart. Guard your heart above all else. Because out of this are the issues of life. We're going to look at another passage, Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7. This one simply says, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Uh, Another passage that tells us how critical the heart is. It's what we think about, what we think in our hearts. 
determines who we are. And so when I tell you this evening that it is the place in our heart, our spiritual heart, it's where our feelings, our emotions, where our desires, what we want, come together with what we believe. And it determines the course of our life, but it's more. It determines who we are. And that belief is not something I made up. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, and most of you have this passage committed to memory, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, that God hath raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made our salvation the heart is where the desires what we want the emotions how we feel combined with what we believe and who we believe in and out of it then come the issues of life one writer called the heart the depository of all of your deepest moral spiritual and ethical convictions that was good that part of your life that makes you, you. That's why we have such a powerful command given in this passage, guard your hearts. Let me ask you a question, students. So those of you who have a car or a truck, when you pull up in public and get out of your car or truck and move away from it, do you lock your car or truck? Do you? When you leave your house, do you lock your house? Uh, Do you put a lock on your piggy bank? Sorry, y'all don't have piggy banks. We certainly are careful about our money. By the way, be careful with your money here at camp. Amen? I know we're all Christians here. Be careful. Are we careful with our phones? Do we lock them? You have a locking mechanism on your phone? Sure you do. Are we careful about our health? Are we concerned about our physical well-being, our physique? Are we careful about our looks, how we look? Do we guard those things? Yes, more than anything else. The Bible says you guard your heart. Guard your heart. These words were written from a father to a son. This particular father is not unknown to us. His name is Solomon. He was king of Israel. I want you to use your imagination with me for a moment tonight. Students, I want you to imagine that your daddy is the richest man in the world. The richest man in the world is your dad. Let's also add to that, by the way, he is the most powerful man in the world. Your dad. Those two things often go together. It certainly did in this case. Richest man in the world, most powerful man in the world, he's your dad. He's in the prime of life. He's in his 40s. His wisdom, he is so incredibly intelligent that people literally come from around the world to ask him uh, questions and seek his opinions about how they should live. And you know this. Your dad's in demand. People stand in line to see him. One day your dad calls you up, sends a messenger to you. You walk in, and there he is. Surrounded by guards that are all carrying gold shields. He is sitting on an ivory throne that is overlaid with gold. That was a wonder. One of the wonders of the ancient world. 
He has a golden crown upon his head, a scepter in his hand, and he waves to you. Son, come close. Baby girl, come here. Come here, son. He pulls you close like only a dad can. He's got that intense look on his face. He's not mad. He's intent. Or y'all follow me. Have you seen that intense look in your dad's eye? You listen to me. What does he say? Guard your heart. More than anything else, you guard your heart. Don't ever forget it. Guard your heart more than anything else. I'm not really making that context up. That is exactly what the Proverbs were. Solomon's words to his son. Guard your heart. By the time this week is over, you're, you're going to feel like we've worn you out talking about the heart. But honestly, with only three days left now, I, I, I wonder if we've got enough time to really cover it. But I hope by the time we load you up on the buses Friday morning that you'll go out of here remembering and thinking about this old man and that old man from long ago reaching across the centuries telling you more than anything else, more than you protect anything else, more than you're concerned about anything else, more than you guard anything else, you guard your heart. For out of it is the course of your life. There's two primary reasons then why we're told to guard our heart. You'll hear these again too. We guard our heart for the same reason then that we guard anything else because it is precious and valuable. Precious. If our heart is what determines the issues of life, and it is, then it is incalculably precious. And so like all really, really precious things, we take care of them. We're careful with it. Guard your heart. But also, obviously, we guard things that are precious because they're in peril. They're in danger. And we're not really left to wonder for very long about what the big threat is, the big danger is to our heart. If we know it is precious, and it is, and if we know then there's something that puts it in grave danger, then what is it? And we're not going to have to read very far in the Bible to know what that is. Because the very first time the heart is mentioned in the Word of God is in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Yes, that's the first and second time that the heart is mentioned in Scripture. One is when man's heart was filled with sin and one was when God's heart was broken. It grieved God's heart. Do you ever think that we can grieve the heart of God? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Literally, that could be stop grieving because we already are. It's not like it took them a long, long time to get there. I mean, we start with Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, the fall, then Genesis, boom, there's Genesis 6. 
And God looked at the hearts of men, and they were full of evil. Full of evil. We guard the heart then because it's in peril. And what is the greatest danger to the heart? It is its inclination towards sin, toward things that are evil. You have that in you. I have it in me. Guard your heart because that heart is bent toward evil. We're going to look in Isaiah chapter 57 tonight. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn over there, you can do that. But we'll have the passages up here if you just want to follow. You can take quick notes. I'm going to look at this whole chapter. I'm not going to spend a lot of time preaching about the verses. I'm just going to lay it out here before you. It has a lot to say about the heart. It's a situation in Israel that developed. And it's really intriguing what God says in Isaiah 57. Verse 1, he says, the righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, everyone walking in his uprightness. This is a simple statement of fact. The righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. One translation had this, the righteous perish and no one cares. No one cares. You young people tonight are living in an era of declining righteousness. It is true around the world, but it is certainly true in America, and it's true right here in Arkansas. Yes, you are living in an era of declining righteousness. I'm one of the youngest members of my generation. I'm not uh, just personally or specifically. I mean, I was born in 1959, which meant that I'm at the last end of what was known as the baby boom. Until recently, we were the largest generation in American history. Y'all have passed us by. But I'm, uh, I'm, the, I'm the younger end of my generation. The older end of my generation are in the late 70s. My parents' generation, what's often called the World War II generation, they're, uh, they're up there. And the World War II generation is passing. I'll probably live to see them for the most part pass. You most certainly will. I want to tell you students today, I grew up in a world that was vastly different than the world you're growing up in. Over the course of my lifetime, one lifetime, born in 1959, raised in the 60s, graduated in 1977, married in 1978, over the course then of my lifetime from the 60s and 70s, we have seen an incredible shift in American culture. We're not the first one that did. After all, God said it long ago through the prophet Isaiah, the, the, the righteous perishes. God promises an effect to uh, the death of the righteous. They're taken away from evil. <laughs> uh, every now and then we can stop and thank God. My mama died in 2008, and I'm thankful she wasn't alive to see some of the mess that's happened in the last 14 years. You see, when a, when a righteous person dies, then they're delivered from evil. They go on to be with the Lord. We know about that. They're at rest. They're at peace. They're having a good old time with Jesus. Amen? But then there's all the rest. And the prophet calls attention then to the passing of the righteous and how that people were not concerned about that. In the world I grew up in, there was a strong commitment to living righteously. 
to making good choices, to avoiding the vices, to growing up to be a productive part of society. We heard those things a lot. Anywhere from 75 to 85% of Americans were church members on any given Sunday. Over 70% of America would be in church. Yes, church. But a revolution happened in the 60s and 70s. They called it a sexual revolution, but it was a lot bigger revolution than that. It was a specific guided, planned effort to move this nation away from the Word of God and from following God. The righteous then, of course, began to perish. First one generation, now another. Not only did nobody care that the righteous was perishing, they were kind of glad to see us go. After all, we are deplorables. God not only saw then the righteous passing, but he saw something else. Verse 3, Isaiah 57. But you draw near sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the cleft of the rocks. You see, the righteous was passing. God saw the righteous in a state of decline, but there was another group that was increasing, and God calls them the children of iniquity. The children of iniquity. He describes them as having open mouths and tongues sticking out. And, and this is a posture that we're familiar with. We know what it looks like. God is talking about somebody screaming. Somebody's hollering, yelling, screaming. You ever see that in your world? Yeah, yes, you do. We know that posture well. Who are they screaming at? Screaming at God. Screaming at God's people, God's truth. So in this day when the righteous was in decline, another generation is coming up, the children of transgression. According to the Center for Disease Control, CDC, they've been in the news quite a bit over the last couple of years, CDC. I know this because I looked it up last week to make sure it was still there, and sure enough, it's still there. And in 2020, the last year that they offered statistics for, 40% of the births in the United States of America, 40% in 2020 were to unwed mothers. Uh, by the way, 100% of those births, according to the CDC, were to females. I was really surprised that language was still on there. Probably by next week or two, now that I've called them up, Facebook will tell them and they'll be changing it. The CDC can still see the obvious truth. Uh, only women can give birth. But let's not overlook the tragedy of this. 40% of the births in the United States of America in 2020 were to unmed, unwed, unmarried females. God, you see, was looking down at a people who were turning away from Him, and He called them then the children of iniquity. 
on a high and lofty mountain. Verse 7, he says, you have set your bed and there you went up to offer sacrifice behind the door and the doorpost. You have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide and you've made a covenant for yourself with them. Let me just stop there and remind you or actually tell you because most of you don't know this is that God designed sex between a man and a woman to be a covenant relationship. Did you know that? Ask your pastors, your youth leaders about it. They'll all tell you. God designed it to be a covenant relationship. So he saw them up on the mountains then. They've uncovered their bed. They've enlarged it. They've got a whole lot of people in their bed now. And you've made a covenant for yourself with them and you've loved their bed and You've looked on nakedness. God said they'd move their bedrooms to the mountaintops. He's not talking about the snow-covered Rocky Mountain kind of peaks here. These mountains represented open hilltops. What God was saying was that they'd move their bedrooms out into prominent display where anybody could see. You know, what goes on between a man and a woman is private. God set it up that way. It's intimate and private. But in Isaiah, long ago, Isaiah 57, God said you've moved it up on the mountains and the the mountains could also refer to a place of prominence. It is where they had made it the most important thing, like it trumps everything. The most important thing in all the world is your sexual activities. It defines you. It makes you who you are. It's the most important thing of all. God said you put it up on the mountain. It says, children of iniquity, what have you done? You've forsaken me. You've moved your bedrooms up on the mountaintops. Verse 9, you journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way. But you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. God describes them seeking something. And what are we seeking? We're seeking companionship. We're seeking love. We're seeking intimacy. We're seeking peace in our heart. But the more they went this way, the more troubled they became. They did not find what they were looking for. So what did they do? They went on further and further and further and further never admitting, never imagining that they should admit that what they're trying isn't working. Verse 17, for the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. They go to the king, to the ruling authorities, thinking that the ruling authority somehow could give them something that would give peace and comfort in their heart and life, and it just wasn't there. It didn't matter how many kings passed, how many laws. It just didn't work. They determined a way. They determined a course of life, and they're determined to make it work. They started their life in iniquity. They didn't want to admit it or acknowledge it. They went further and further and further into it, never admitting how hopeless, how hopeless, how hopeless it made them feel inside. 
Nobody in this camp tonight feels any more hopeless than the person trying to find peace and rest and comfort with a heart and life full of sin. There is not a pill anywhere on this planet that can bring peace to your heart or mine if we're filling it up with sin. Can't happen. Don't have time tonight to cover any more of this description very powerful in Isaiah chapter 57 God was very blunt and direct but I want you to see God's final statement verse 20 the wicked are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt there is no peace says my God for the wicked wow wow If you've ever been to the Gulf when a storm was coming in and you saw those waves begin to pound long before there was clouds, long before there was rain, the waves began to come. A day at the most two, and everything there is stirred up and the stuff just begins to pile up on the beach. The locals down there will say, the sea is angry. The sea is angry. It's relentless. God says, this is the heart of the wicked. It just keeps on coming and keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on bringing up all this filth. There's no peace for the wicked. In spite of the ways that God had moved in judgment, they kept on going. In spite of how weary they became and how tired they got of it all, they kept going. In spite of the hopelessness that was in their heart and the helpless feeling, in spite of the fact that they wanted to quit and they just couldn't and it just kept on and kept on and kept on and there was no peace. But there was sin and backsliding in their hearts. They feared. I didn't read all those passages. You can read them tonight. They feared, but they didn't fear God. They cried out, but they didn't cry out to God. They cried out to their idols that they had made for themselves. You know, when you cry out to an idol, you know what an idol says? That's what they say. God said, cry out to your idols and see if they'll help you. They didn't. Keep on in their sin, see if it'll help. It didn't. So Isaiah 57 then describes the passing of a generation, the passing of a righteous generation who would die and they would die in peace and they would go to be with the Lord and they were delivered from all this. But in their, in, as they were passing, then another generation comes on the scene and God calls them the children of iniquity. The circumstances of their birth and the choices of their life, they went against God and they went further and further and they got tired and tired and more and more exhausted and heart full of turmoil. But then God offers a marvelous alternative. Verse 14, it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The contrite means the repentant, the humble, and the repentant. This is why we come to Bud Creek Camp. That's why we're here this week. What we want to try to do is we want to do what the prophet was saying in this passage. We want to prepare a way. We want to remove the obstructions. We want to get you out of this for a little while so you can then have a way to respond to God in humility, to come to Him in repentance, in repentance because God says, when we humble ourselves before Him, I will revive your hearts. And that promise is just as real tonight at Bud Creek Camp as it was so many hundreds of years ago in Israel when Isaiah said them. You come to me in humility and repentance and I will revive your hearts. But I want to say something to you tonight, students, and you must remember it. Revival is for the redeemed. Revival is for the redeemed. You can't be revived. That means to be picked back up if you're never revived in the first place. Revival is for the redeemed. It is for the people of God. Because you see, even in Isaiah's day, they weren't all turning away. They weren't all the children of iniquity, but they were all being influenced to head in that same direction. And God called to them. Prepare a way, he said, for my people. Remove the obstructions. Let them come to me. Come to me in in humility. Come to me in repentance and I will revive your heart. What a great invitation. There's a second offer. And we dare not miss it. Because with these two offers, I promise you that God gives an offer to every person in this auditorium. Whether you are a child of God whose heart has wandered from God and it needs to be renewed and restored, you need a revival in your heart, then that message comes to you. This is why I pulled up Isaiah 57. I wanted to show you this tonight, but the same God that sees that His children have wandered far from Him, that same God sees the children of iniquity. And what does He say to them? Verse 18, I have seen His ways. But I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near. Paul quoted from that passage in the book of Ephesians, Jesus Christ came and proclaimed peace to them that are far off and to them that are near. And so it doesn't matter. You might be in a church service like this for the first time in your life. You might have been going to church for many, many years, but I want to tell you tonight, going to church doesn't save anybody. You can sit in a soft padded pew of a church every Sunday morning and be lost and going straight to hell. And there's many people in this service tonight that can give testimony to that. It doesn't matter whether you're far off or whether you're near, God sees the children of iniquity. And that may be you tonight. You're unsaved, you're lost as you can be and you know it. You had no choice in the, no say in the circumstances of your birth. 
You may have been born to parents who weren't married. You may not know your birth parents. You may not have ever known the love of a mother and a dad who loved each other and loved you. You didn't have any control over that. You didn't. You were born into the situation you were, and God sees that. I'll tell you what else God has seen. He's seen what you've been through. He has seen what has been done to you. He sees the heartbreak. He sees the hurt. He sees every step you've taken trying to fix yourself and trying to feed all of this into that big hole that's your heart. God sees it. And what does he say? I have seen your ways, but I will heal you. I'll heal your heart. You're already weary. You're already tired. You can keep going and keep trying or you can listen to God tonight. God knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've done. He knows what you're planning to do. And He says, I'll bring peace to those who are near. And to those who are far off, God's invitation is to everybody in this building tonight. Have you allowed your heart to turn away from God as a believer? God says, you come to me and I'll heal you. I'll bring peace to you. To those who are then have never been saved, God said, well, I will revive your heart. But then God also says... I'll heal your heart. One writer spoke of how the heart is like a fine musical instrument. He said you can tune it, hang it on the wall. I think of a violin. He didn't say a violin specifically, but that's what I think of. A a violin has to be tuned, hung on the wall. You leave it there hanging in its place. You come back in a little while. Guess what you've got to do? Tune it again. The heart is like a fine instrument that has to be tuned. There's no such thing, you see, as once tuned, always tuned. (laughs) We got a piano tuner in the building tonight. You can ask him after service. There's no such thing as once tuned. Maybe those digital things, but those things got strings. Nuh-uh. They get out of tune. Brother Jason, our band is going to be coming up now at this time as they're coming. You know, I asked him to sing that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And we used to sing it when I was your age. I loved it then. I love it still. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Thank you, God, for your mercy. The Bible says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts.